Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, June 14th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim gives us the history of the Toy Story Mania attraction. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that when you think about it, the seashore is the worst possible place to sell seashells. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? For some odd reason, this makes me think of that, that wonderful Stephen Wright joke. I have a hobby. I have the world's largest collection of seashells. I keep it scattered on beaches around the world. Maybe you've seen some of it. <laughs> is he still alive? He is. He That's is. Fantastic. And he's still, you know, I mean, he, he has honestly done some of my favorite stand-up. I mean, for oh, yeah. example, the companion joke for this is, you know, well, you can't have everything. Where would you put it? My favorite is uh, everything's walking distance if you have the time. <laughs> well, but speaking of time, one more Stephen Wright joke. I went to a restaurant that serves breakfast at any time, so I ordered French toast during the Renaissance. Yeah. <laughs> okay, tip your waitresses, we folks. Could, we can do an entire okay. show on this. All right. There we go. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout-out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Sarah Leo, Four Dreams and Ideas, Jay Bean, and Max Slabaugh. And longtime subscribers, Ingaloo 80, Lee Stone, Karen Meadows, and Move E Buff. Jim, these were the early designers on Epcot's original test track, whose idea for the world's first in-ride drive-through restaurant still remains in the Disney archives, waiting for the day when someone in management knows the future when they see it. True story. Seriously, that's actually a genius idea. Someone at Disney needs to send you a check now. Because if you had the option of hitting that button on the test track vehicle to just slide over to, well, if it's Disney quick service, it would only take 40 minutes. <laughs> You're thinking of Disneyland, Jim. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. But no, that that's a genius idea right there. I, I think in terms of a comedy routine, I think it'd just be hysterical. There you go. Can I even look at you? Oh, and then it's gone. Anyway. All right, Jim, before we do the, before we do the yep. news, I, uh, I went to uh, Epcot this past week. My, uh, my sister, Christina, had set mm -hmm. up an agave experience at La Cava del Tequila, so I'll, I'll tell you about it. So Hilda Castillo, who we all know is the tequila ambassador, one of the tequila ambassadors at La Cava, hosted it. I love Hilda. She recently earned the title of Conocedor de Tequila, which is one step below sommelier. So congratulations Oof. to her. So... Uh, just before we get started on this review, everyone knows I love La Cava, and I'm, I'm absolutely mm -hmm. not going to do an unbiased mm -hmm. review of it. This is going to be a love fest for the mm -hmm. next five minutes. So um, the thing that I love about Hilda, and I've, I've done tequila tastings with her for many years, is every time she does a tasting, I learn something new about tequila. Uh, in this case, though, I learned about something new about Hilda herself. So Hilda said that, you know, we, we asked her the question, like, like, how did you get involved? with tequila. And she said that when she was 16, she went to her family and she said, look, I, I was very traditional Mexican family. Hilda's from the town of tequila in Jalisco, Mexico, Mexico. So she was literally mm -hmm. born with tequila in her blood. She went to her family and said, look, I am not cut out for, you know, marriage family and, and mm -hmm. that I want to go to school and get a job. And they said, well, that's fine. Go get a job. Where does Hilda go get her, her first job when she's 16, Jim? Mm -hmm. Jose Cuervo. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So Hilda has mm. been working tequila her entire life. And so I asked her, well, how did you, you know, how did you end up at Disney? And she said she had worked for Cuervo for a number of years, going to school and everything. And they came to her one day and said, we have these VIPs from America who want a tour of not only the factory, but of the process and the mm. tasting. And so she uh, gave them the tour. At the end of it, it was, and I'm not going to mention anybody's names because they're executives at Disney mm -hmm. who are still there. 
they were there. They said, look, you know, it's, uh, it's Wednesday. We have a job opening. We have a visa ready for you. The job starts on Monday <laughs> Can you be in the United States. And she went home and told her parents and her parents were like, are you crazy? And she's like, I have a plane ticket. Maybe I am, you know? <laughs> and she's been doing that ever since. Anyway, I just got back from Las Vegas over the weekend. Jimmy and mm-hmm. I talked about it before the show where mm-hmm. I took two 23 year olds for a birthday. And so I figured the tequila experience was just a continuation of the weekend. So um, the tequila experience starts with this. Um, number one is vodka as a mm-hmm. palate cleanser, sort of get all the tastes out of your mouth. And then there are four tequilas, a Blanco, um, which is unaged, uh, you know, straight mm-hmm. from the, the, the still, uh, Reposado, which is aged up to a year, an Añejo, which is one to three years, and then an extra Añejo, which is above three years. So four shots of tequila. Then a Mezcal which gets its smoky flavor from the way the piñas are cooked in the pits to extract the juices. And then you finish with a margarita to go. And when they say to go, I think they mean to go to the Betty Ford Clinic. Because, like, <laughs> first of all, it was all fabulous. All of the tequilas oh, no were doubt. excellent. But the, um, the thing that, that they've added to this is they've given you a small plate with things like chocolate or lime or lemon or, or uh, cocoa or coffee beans on it. So you can see what sort of flavors you get from the individual tequilas. So, you know, if you think this particular thing smells of chocolate or honey or cinnamon or whatever, you've got that right next to you. So you can sort of like smell one then smell the other, right? Compare the scents. And that was amazing because that really, really helped sort of identify what it is that you're getting from each of these. And then Hilda has this, this technique where you smell the tequila in three different places around the glass and it's mm-hmm. she's just fantastic at it it was really good anyway super fun i think it's 150 dollars per person it literally should be either the first or the last thing you do during the day because you're not going to want to do much else after that <laughs> um i think they're running them during food and wine uh okay. it's a fantastic fantastic event so and you were in fact able to close your fist to hold the margarita to go you know, they actually give it to you in a, in a larger thing and i think it's just for that i ubered there and back thank god Mm-hmm. And I would also suggest that people Uber or, you know, ideally you get a room at like Beach Club and just stagger mm-hmm. over there. Yeah. <laughs> but super fun. If you guys get a chance to do it uh, during food and wine, the Agave Experience at Cava, it always sells out. So look for it to be announced when it happens. Mm-hmm. All right, Jim, let's do the uh, the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, some reopenings. The indoor play area at Dumbo reopened yesterday. It was at the Magic Kingdom Tuesday night. What is it? Thursday. So it was there Tuesday night, and they were getting ready to open it. I believe it opened up on Wednesday. Also, the um, the post-ride game admission space apparently has also opened up as well. So that's good. Did I hear correctly that Dumbo, at the least, it's... Even in the the indoor player, it's seventy percent capacity. Is it? Is is that what you heard as well? I couldn't or? tell. I couldn't tell whether it was reduced because we had somebody there looking. I couldn't tell whether it was reduced capacity or parents just weren't sending their kids in there, like because kids uh-huh. aren't vaccinated yet, right? Yeah. And so I, I couldn't tell whether it was like we're limiting the number of people or the the parents were just self limiting themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is Ohana at the Polynesian reopens July 9th. I got up at five o'clock this morning and got reservations for both breakfast and dinner. Uh, so the following description comes from our friends over at WW Magic. For breakfast, start with pineapple coconut breakfast bread, Stitch and Mickey Mouse waffles, 
and then uh, eggs with uh, egg skillets with ham, sausage, and breakfast potatoes. So the standard sort of Disney breakfast stuff. No characters, and I think the price is down to like twenty five dollars. Which, as far as Disney breakfasts go, I think that's that's pretty good. Dinner is all you can eat platters of steak, chicken, sausage, and island shrimp casserole with fried rice and roasted broccolini. Uh, mm. Pot stickers, crispy soy chicken wings, those are all from the old menu. And the signature Ohana bread pudding with warm caramel sauce and vanilla ice cream are also back. So in the old menu had peel and eat shrimp. That mm. is now shrimp casserole. I don't think there's a green salad and there used to be. And then uh, noodles have been replaced by rice. And I think the noodle thing has caused the biggest controversy online. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, the reaction for like no noodles. You were, were mentioning having been to Vegas and the crab leg shortage out in the real populace versus the casinos. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, you, you don't have to worry about people uh, stealing casino chips in Vegas now. It's mm-hmm. people are stealing crab legs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Given we are talking about noodles versus rice. So it's like, this can't be a cost per unit thing because it's like what a point zero zero five yeah the uh, the two one, one is the uh, cheapest grain the other one is the cheapest carb you could possibly make i think it has to do with staffing because noodles don't sit well right you have mm-hmm. to noodles have to be fresh otherwise they they clump together or you put oil on them and then they they mm-hmm. tend to soften over time right so noodles require constant upkeep whereas rice doesn't and that constant upkeep means you have to have someone in the kitchen who's on noodle duty Mm -hmm. and i don't think they have the the kitchen staff and that's going to lead into one of our next uh uh, segments there but i think it's it's entirely staffing that's why there's not Mm -hmm. there's uh why there's rice instead of noodles it might be slightly cheaper but yeah that's not the Mm -hmm. driving thing there okay so i've got um breakfast and dinner reservations on the ninth um Mm -hmm. assuming i have enough pepto-bismol i will uh report on it on the 10th. And I think the 10th is actually, it'll be the, it'll be the following week after that because the, we'll record on the 8th. Okay. Tangerine Cafe at Epcot reopens July 15th. Similar menu as before. This was one of the highest rated restaurants in Epcot prior mm-hmm. to closing. So that's super good news. Um, the big change here, of course, is uh, Disney's running it now instead of a third party group. So we'll see what happens there. Yeah. Also, Jim, I know we keep saying it, and, mm. and eventually it's going to be true. It looks like Space 220 is going to reopen or going to open. Well, I, this time, at least we can speak with some confidence because there's actually uh, job ricks out there, yep. you know, for, for very specific positions, yeah. or so says the Patina Group. The Patina so. Group is hiring. Um, so look for that in the fall. Mm-hmm. We say that, Jim, mm-hmm. and this has got to be the most star-crossed restaurant opening like I, yeah. I think this is one of those things where even if I get a media invite, I probably mm-hmm. won't go because you know I'd be looking out for asteroids or meteors, <laughs> like like literally from outer space. <laughs> like what's gonna what's gonna happen? I'd be so jumpy, I wouldn't be able to enjoy it. You know, like, this is Central Florida we're talking about. Think sinkhole length. Sinkhole, exactly. <laughs> every time, every time there was a slight vibration, I'm like, here it there comes. We oh well, yeah, we had a good uh, run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so hopefully, uh, hopefully in the fall that uh, that reopens. I'm looking forward hmm. uh, to seeing it. If if nothing else, I mean, other than the fact that it's going to finally open, some of that technology might be things we see in the Star Wars hotel as well. So, oh no doubt, might no doubt. be a quick hint of that. Finally, in terms of reopenings, uh, Sebastian's Bistro at Caribbean Beach reopens June 24th. This was a below average restaurant before the pandemic, and you know, with staff shortages and things like that. I didn't book. 
a meal here right away. I kind of like want to see what happens and see some initial reviews from other people first. Before I do it, this is one of those cases where, you know, normally when I review a restaurant, opening night is fair game because as I tell people all the time, Disney knows, Disney picked the day on which it's opening, right? It's not a surprise to anyone. Mm -hmm. They're a $75 billion company. They certainly have the means to practice as much as they want on cooking the dishes. There's really no excuse, especially if you're charging full price, an opening day review is, is fair game, right? In this case, because it wasn't very highly rated before and because it's mm -hmm. at a, uh, it's one of the few sit downs at a uh, lower priced hotel, right? It's not, this is an mm -hmm. artist point we're talking about here. I'm going to give that kitchen team a little bit of time to get up to speed to see what happens there. Okay, especially given the current job market in Orlando. Yeah, it's super, super tough. That seems fair. Yeah. So I want to do a, a side Las Vegas. So I'm, I'm in the cab in Las Vegas going uh, from the airport to my hotel and talking to the cab driver. And the cab driver actually mentioned, like, do you know anyone who can work in a kitchen? Because the Rio is giving out like a $500 bonus to anyone who can work in a kitchen. I'm like, wow. I, just, I, just, I just flew in from out of town. I, I can't work here. She's like, yeah, but if you know someone. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> if you'd like to step into the kitchen, you know, if you're done gambling for a while, exactly. we're just gonna we're just gonna stop by this one off strip place where the owner just wants to talk to you for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you may want to see what you can do with a skillet. Who knows? Thanks. Anyway, all right. Uh, so, Jim, the uh, the big news out of Epcot, and I think for maybe for wider Walt Disney World, harmonious testing continues with more fireworks. Yes, yes. And there's a rumor going around that mm. we may sometime in July see the return of some normal fireworks. Like I don't think I don't think we're going to see 4th of July spectacular fireworks. And the main reason for that is the supply chain involved in getting those fireworks to the United States is probably months long out of mm. China. And you would have had to have known like in January that you were going to host fireworks in July. And I don't think Disney knew that in January. Especially if people are looking for the sort of classic 4th of July perimeter display. Yeah, that's and not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, no, if, we got, if we got regular happily ever after and we got mm -hmm. whatever they ordered for Harmonious or whatever's at the end was at the end of, um, they might have had leftover stuff from Epcot Forever. Mm -hmm. I, I would be thrilled with that. Right. Okay. They probably have stuff on storage or a mm -hmm. normal order for happily ever after. Yeah, that'd be fine. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, at this point, I would be very surprised if we did not see fireworks in July. That's just my prediction. Haven't heard anything yet. We'll see what happens. Okay. And then finally, Jim, I was at Epcot yesterday and I noticed mm -hmm. an opening procedure change. Now, normally, and this is only at Epcot, by the way, I confirmed today. Mm -hmm. Normally, the, you know, if a park says it has an official opening at 9 a.m., it's really open at 8.10, right? And 8.10, 8.15, right? 45 to 50 mm -hmm. minutes in advance. And you can go on in any of the rides that are open. Um, you know, you can go on. Like they, they, don't, they don't hold you in a central area. There's no like old school rope drop. Like once, the, mm -hmm. once they decide to let you into the park, you're, you're in the park and you can go about your business. Um, but mm -hmm. at Epcot, I think on Monday, they started this process where they let you in past the tap styles, but then you're held before Spaceship Earth in that you know, future world plaza until exactly 1030. And then at 1030, everyone is free to go. Hmm. And so my, so there's no social distancing, you know, anymore outdoors. Mm -hmm. But my, my first question on this is why, mm -hmm. why would you do it? Now, number one, you, um, you know, if you start the rides at 1030 versus 1010, 
let's mm. say for Epcot, you save, you know, 20 minutes of labor a day, probably half an hour of labor a day, you know, getting the rides up. But I think Jim, this, remember um, 30 minutes in advance is what we're getting later on in the fall with early theme park entry. Oh, you're right. So my suspicion is this is a test of two things. One, how they're going to hold people for early theme park entry, right? Mm -hmm. And then number two, think about the crowd buildup that happens in a park starting at you know, 45 or 50 minutes before the park officially opens. When I was in Future World Plaza, there were mm -hmm. several thousand people basically going on three rides. Right. So the thing that Disney's trying to figure out now, especially when you talk about, you know, long-term things like Genie, what is the effect on standby lines when you hold thousands of people in a corral and then release them to three rides immediately? Right. What happens to the wait times? And, and I'll tell you what happened, right? So mm -hmm. the wait time at Soren went from basically zero if you were at the front of the line to 45 minutes if you were at the end of that group in the span mm -hmm. of like three minutes because of the many thousands of people who went into uh, or who were in the park, you know, almost half of them went to Soren. Mm -hmm. A large chunk went to Test Track. Frozen was actually um, broken down. It didn't, didn't open during the day. So nobody mm -hmm. went to World Showcase. And, you know, a few people went to Spaceship Earth or whatever, but the vast majority of people are going to Test Track or to Soren. So the wait times there, instead of sort of growing more gradually as if the park opened at 10, it basically went from zero to 45 in the span of a few minutes. And there was actually at one point, as soon as the park opened, there was a line from the entrance of Soren all the way back to living with the land. And at that point, Disney had stopped people from going down the stairs. You know, how, like it's a two tier, two levels at, at the land. Pavilion. They'd stop people from going down the stairs of the escalator because they didn't want people running into each other at the bottom of the stairs. So they'd actually capped the line and the line started winding back towards the awesome, Pla um, uh, awesome planet film. And then when it reached the entrance of the land pavilion, they stopped letting people in the entrance and the line went down the ramp towards you know, the middle of uh, future world West. Mm -hmm. And this was a relatively low, relatively uncrowded day. I mean, it's a Monday and granted it was the, you know, it's a Monday. It's the first full week of summer vacation. So the crowds were substantial, but it wasn't spring break or it wasn't Christmas. And my, my first thought was if this is just the initial group at 1030 on some random Monday, in June, what would the line look like at Thanksgiving or Christmas? Or like, where, where would you put the people? You basically, you have the same problem, right? Like, yeah. and, and so the, the thing that Disney was doing where they were opening up the park at, you know, 1010 or whatever, that basically allowed the first wave of people to get in and out of Soren, mm -hmm. right? Because between 1010 and 1030, that's 20 minutes. That's roughly five or 600 people going through Soren you know, mm -hmm. current capacity or whatever. And that's five or 600 people who aren't in that line, but now they're all in that line. Right. And so that's what that does. So that's super interesting. It's the only park that's doing it so far. So I want to see what happens at other parks. Um, we went, went over to animal kingdom today. Did you see what happened in animal kingdom today with the power outage? Yes. Yes. <laughs> what was so funny is if you were on Twitter at that time, the people who were doing the Jurassic park jokes, you know, the gates are down, the gates are down. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, uh, so it, it didn't happen in Animal Kingdom today. It didn't happen at Magic Kingdom. I'll check the studios tomorrow when I head over there. But yeah, anyway. Hearing all of this about Soaring is fascinating. And remember, you know, Soaring is the attraction that added a third theater, yeah. you know, for capacity. Let's jump ahead to late 2022, early 2023. 
when Cosmic Rewind comes online and the notion <sighs> that... Yeah, we'll have both Remy and Cosmic Rewind. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but if the World Showcase plan holds, where the, there's that slight delay between Future World and World Showcase when, oh, yeah. when those open, the center of gravity of Future World, at least in the morning, will shift so radically from everybody goes right to go to Soren to everybody goes left yeah. to Cosmic and Rewind. And remember that, you know, it's always that first year when, you know, the money is spent on the attraction itself rather than shade structures. <laughs> it, uh, this is one of those things. It's the, uh, it's the let's design this ride in California, but, but build it in Florida effect. Yeah. 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 That's, what, yeah. that's definitely true. And it, what we're going to mm. see shortly here on October 1st is we're going to see the center of gravity shift at Epcot from future world to France in world showcase. That is an excellent point. And the entrances for international gateway will become much more crowded because that's where the smart people will go to get into France. Cause it's a 10 minute head start mm -hmm. over world, uh, over future world. But then, as soon as Cosmic Rewind opens, it all shifts back, except for you know small small number of families who are still mm -hmm. going to go on Remy and maybe Frozen and stuff like that. But the the other interesting thing about that is when you consider, you know, we've talked about what what Disney wants to do with Genie, where you know they want to plan out your entire day, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that the people who are working in that have to consider is there's going to be a non-zero number of people who sign up for Genie and completely disregard whatever that app tells them to do first. And they just go to, to uh, cosmic rewind, mm -hmm. right? They're like, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll figure out the app later on. And that is going to completely throw off the rest of the day because now you've got a large number of people mm -hmm. who have done one ride mm -hmm. and you can't send them there later on. And now there's a limited number of rides that you can send them to. It's going to, I don't know how Disney's going to get around that one. That's going to be super interesting. No, absolutely. On the other hand, you got to feel badly for the crew at La Cava for all of the Disney employees will show up there at the end of the day and just bring me a flight of tequila. All right, I've been dealing with crowds all day. Just keep them coming. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Actually, let's do some, uh, some listener questions. This one from uh, Greg DVC Dad on Twitter, who sent in a screen cap that he got, and it said this, I purchased tickets to a special event like Disney's After Hours Boobash or Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party and selected print at home e-tickets as a delivery method, but I never got the tickets. Who should I contact? And the reason why uh, Greg sent it to us is it explicitly mentions both Boobash and mm -hmm. Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party. So, oh, yeah. yes. Um, okay. Good catch. Um, so, mm -hmm. yeah, there's a couple of ways to read this. One is they just simply replaced Halloween Party uh, with Boobash, right? And just mm -hmm. updated it. But I think given the fact that Boobash exists, Mm -hmm. is a virtual guarantee that we're going to see a Christmas party as well. Whether it's called the same thing, mm -hmm. I'm not sure. But uh, you know, I would, I would peg the odds of, of us seeing a Christmas celebration at pretty darn close to 100%. What do you think, Jim? Oh, absolutely. In fact, just this week, there was word coming out of California that the decorations team for that resort, it's like we are prepping a Halloween program and we are prepping a Halloween our Christmas program. So you oh, know, sure. on both coasts, leaning heavily into the holidays to get folks back. Yeah. So. And it, it was expected to be some sort of after hours event as well. Not the, uh, mm -hmm. it may retain the name. I think the name is sort of iconic for the Christmas party. I, I mm -hmm. can't imagine them change it to be like Disney after hours. Non-denominational non holiday. Holiday celebration. <laughs> holiday celebration. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Winter, we go. winter, winter celebration. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you can't even say winter because if you're coming from Australia, it's summer. 
Oh, so you don't want to be go. you don't want to be a uh, hemispherist, right? Okay, contact the Seinfeld people, find out what it's going to cost to get Festivus. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, our friend uh, Chris Lawson sent in a uh, Disney survey. We've seen the questions before; it's sort of standard. Um, mm-hmm. You know what made you plan this, but uh, but his answer to one question just cracked me up. So I want to I want to read this one out. So the question mm-hmm. number twenty was: Which of these factors would you say is influence on you being uh, somewhat committed to your current Walt Disney World reservation? And it's things like quarantine requirements, um, pace of new coronavirus infections in Central Florida, my job or work situation or schedule, new school learning environments, and so mm-hmm. on. And uh, and Chris's answer was, in reality, as a family of nine, I can't afford anything else besides Fort Wilderness. Let's be honest. I made a resort reservation because of the perks, uh, early fast pass reservations and getting into the parks early. They come with staying on site. If those perks don't come back from by December, I'm dropping my reservation. So Chris... Gets to wow. the nub of the of the point. Oh, hey, okay. <laughs> Speak truth to power. Okay, cool. I, I thank you, exactly. thank you for doing that. All right, this one's from uh, Kelso from T Town, who sent it actually a, a, a interesting question. He said, uh, "We're going this summer as a makeup trip that was canceled during uh, due to COVID. I want to surprise my family, a wife and two girls, ages twelve and ten, with a progressive dinner." I researched and found this used to be offered by Disney, but honestly, I feel I could put one together for less money. And it would be just as fun. So, uh, so I'll pause here for a second. So, progressive dinners where you start at one hotel and you work mm-hmm. your way around course by course to other restaurants. And the way that Disney did it was uh, Magic Kingdom Resorts. So, starting off at the Poly and ending up at the Grand Floridian, or sorry, starting off at the Contemporary, ending up at the uh, the Grand Floridian. So, uh, uh, Kelso writes, we always plan an off day in the middle of our vacation. If you were to plan a progressive dinner, appetizers, dinner, dessert, where would you go and why? You and Jim always have great knowledge on these types of things. I would do this at restaurants not located in the parks. Time wouldn't be a factor since it's our off day and we can use the afternoon and night. All right. So a couple of things. Um, I'm going with restaurants that are going to be open next month because Kelso Good. said that he's going next okay. month. And I'm not going to mm-hmm. do the contemporary poly grand flow loop because Disney did that mm-hmm. already. So it has to be something different. So the thing I was looking mm-hmm. for here was where do you start and then where do you end up? And um, mm. we just mentioned that fireworks might be coming back. So I wanted to end up somewhere where Kelso had the potential to maybe see fireworks mm-hmm. if they were coming back. Okay. So I thought of California Grill to start off at appetizers, but uh, two things made me not go with it. Number one, nobody wants to get that dressed up for appetizers, especially mm-hmm. if we're going from resort to resort in the summer, right? And number mm-hmm. two, it's already been done. So mm-hmm. I went with Geyser Point at Wilderness Lodge. Ooh. So okay. great resort, very pretty, mm-hmm. great restaurant. The other thing I was looking at here is um, I'd already picked out my entrees at this point, and I mm-hmm. didn't want – I wanted stuff that was flavorful but not like super, super, super bold because you don't want to start off bold and basically desensitize your tongue to the experiences mm-hmm. that you're going to have later. So um, I specifically also picked appetizers here that were different than what we're going to get later on. So I started with the shrimp on a wire which mm-hmm. is served chilled with soy lime vinaigrette, togarishi, which is Japanese seasoning, um, shishito peppers, which I like, and then mm-hmm. uh, chili aioli. Now, it sounds that might sound spicy. It's not. Mm-hmm. I've had it. It's delicious. Okay. The other thing I would suggest for the kids, there's a cheese and charcuterie board that serves two relatively mild, great cheeses, all from the Pacific Northwest. Again, not going to overwhelm your taste buds. And mm-hmm. then the other thing I would recommend is the crispy salmon croquettes, with a miso tartar sauce. It's twice we've mentioned tartar sauce in this in this show. Um, but again, very subtle flavors, uh, nothing mm-hmm. that's going to overwhelm your taste buds for the next thing. The other thing is, is that you can 
Uh, I would Uber from Wilderness Lodge. You could also take the boat from Wilderness Lodge to the Magic Kingdom and then boat to where we're going next, which is the Grand Floridian Cafe. So you've got a couple of different transportation options there. It also gives you some time to sort of digest as you're going to your next thing. Excellent idea. So okay. for entrees, I would do Grand Floridian Cafe, which I ate at again on Tuesday. I love the buttermilk fried chicken there. I think that's fantastic. I also sampled... Well, yeah, go ahead. And you've you previously talked about the buttermilk fried chicken. Which, it's amazing. Which, well, no, but what are the point? It seats six, doesn't it? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, I, I, again, I could not finish it on Tuesday. And I to that point on mm-hmm. Tuesday, because I, I, I knew where I was going there. And I knew mm-hmm. you know the size of the portions that they give you. To that point in that day, my mm-hmm. meals consisted of a hard-boiled egg. Like, I went in <laughs> hungry. Didn't have any appetizers. Didn't have any bread. I'm like, you know what? I've never finished this thing, and I got pretty close, but I, I absolutely did not finish it. Wow, that's still amazing. And it was it was delicious. Okay. Um, buttermilk fried chicken. Um, also, mm-hmm. I tried the New York Strip, which was great. Mm-hmm. I would recommend that medium rare. If you wanted to try a seafood, uh, the miso glazed salmon, but we just had salmon croquettes uh, as appetizers. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, balance that out. If you're going to pick one, then, then don't do the other. Okay. Also, they've got an Impossible Burger. There, mm-hmm. um, I didn't try it this time, but I had it before. It looks great. Uh, they also mm-hmm. do gluten free there um, as well, so you can do that. Mm-hmm. And then I would walk over to the Polly for dessert. And here I would get uh, for the kids Dole whips mm-hmm. from Pineapple and I, and then tropical drinks from either Tambu Lounge, which will be open, mm-hmm. or the pool bar at the Polly. And if there's fireworks at the Magic Kingdom, this sets you up for that. Plus, the Polly is super cool at night with the background uh, music. And the fire and the lamps and everything, it's just a fantastic way to end the day. I love this. The nicest thing is this is outside of the norm. And if you're doing the boat ride over, yeah. the leisurely break between appetizers is more to the point. In the stroll from the Grand Flow over the Poly, you work off a couple of calories. So, no, I love this. This is a great idea. And for some reason, for me, the walk between the Grand Flow and the Poly is not as hot as the walk from the Magic Kingdom to the Grand Flow, which, again, I also did on Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, there's at least a little bit of shade. So, uh, yeah, it's not yeah. bad. Okay. All right. Actually, we have two more questions, Jim. So this one's from Mark, mm-hmm. who says, I've always wondered when you see the wait times listed at Walt Disney World or in Touring Plants, when does the ride start? For example, Tower of Terror. Does the wait, does your wait end when you're in the elevator or does your wait end when you're in the library? Same thing for Rise of the Resistance. Does your wait end when you get in the vehicle or when Ray starts talking? So I wrote in my show notes that this reminds me of the conversation that Laurel and I had about whether photography of nature is art. Like, mm-hmm. like what is what is art? And I said I said it wasn't. Then Laurel took the other side. Um, so really, yeah. So the the for me, the question about when uh, the wait ends and the ride begins depends on the ride and how much line is left mm-hmm. after the initial pre-show. So for example, in Haunted Mansion, which is we all know, right? I would argue that the ride begins in the stretching room because the line is minimal after that. And that's an integral part of the overall experience. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Conversely, when you talk about Tower of Terror, I think you are correct that the attraction really begins at the elevator. Cause frankly, once you're in the library, and then you get in the basement space. Right. The boilers, yeah. Yeah, that depending on when you're in there, that can be a fairly lengthy time. Yeah, that so. could be 10 or 15 minutes right there. Yeah. So I, I don't think in Tower of Terror, I don't think it's the library. The library is, it's more of a holding area. And you could argue that over at uh, Enchanted Tales with Belle, when you're first in Maurice's cottage, that is basically just an elaborate queue with effects. The same thing with the second room that you go through. 
Like that, that's just more waiting. And I, I don't know that I would say that that attraction begins then because they're just basically staging you through different areas, but they're entertaining you as you do it. I would say for things like Enchanted Tales with Bell, it actually begins with the story itself in the, in the, in the oh, room. Yeah. 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 No, um, Rise of the Resistance, I think we would all agree, it begins when Ray starts talking. Like you could argue, and I, you know, I would definitely listen to this argument that the ride actually begins in the, uh, when you enter the transport ship. Like I could see that mm-hmm. as well. For me, there's so little time difference between the two. Like there's not another line you have to get into that it's just easier to include Ray and just make it make it clear for people. I think I can get behind that. So yeah. okay, yeah. This this be an interesting uh, was it, uh, crossfire on CNN. <laughs> <laughs> Len, you ignorant slut. <laughs> exactly. exactly. That's it as well. All right. Here's a question from, uh, from Eddie in Delaware. Yeah. He says, I have some different types of questions that you might not normally get. Uh, I'm unsure if you can't, uh, can or want to answer them, but I'd love to hear what you have to say. Uh, and so there's Jim, this is you and me. Uh, number one, do you still, or have you ever, someone McCarthy, uh, do you still, <laughs> or have you ever loved Disney world and how it's run? I'm not sure if this is a case of Saturday night live was better in my day. Speaking of Saturday night live, or to get in the ins and outs of that, but how do you, uh, how do you and Jim feel about how the company is run? So, Jim, what's your golden age of Walt Disney World? Ooh. Well, first of all, do you love Walt Disney World, right? Or have you ever loved? I am fond of of Walt Disney World. I you know I have enjoyed my many times there. I got married there. I mean, yeah. I have a lot of happy memories associated with Walt Disney World. But if if we're talking golden age. Yeah. I would put that. Hmm. So you can ignore the you're gonna ignore the Walt era of theme parks, right? So you, you has to be after sixty seven. No, that's it exactly. I would argue that it was say from nineteen eighty eight to nineteen ninety two. Wow, <laughs> forty eight months. <laughs> this is during that time. Michael Eisner has been on the job. For four years at this point, he has done some investing in theme parks. He's seen the reaction of, you know, opening new hotels and that sort of thing. And it's during this period of time where we get things like the Caribbean Beach Resort. We get the the Grand Flow. We also get Disney MGM. And it ends with the Walt Disney World version of Splash Mountain, which I know you don't think belongs there. But that's arguably arguably a better version of the attraction than the one that was built in California. I, I think it right now, I think it absolutely belongs in Fertillion. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm concerned about um, theming when it becomes Tiana's ride. And not, I mean, Tiana deserves a ride. But yep. from a chronological perspective, we talked about that. Yeah. So, so what was it? 88 to 92. But again, by the fall of 1992, Michael Eisner is getting the reports out of France about right. how much they overspent on Euro Disney. And he is not just tapping the brakes. He's putting the, the brakes all the way down to the floor in regard to future expansions at the parks and that sort of thing. And Michael was a theme park enthusiast yeah. from 88 to 92. And we got some amazing things. And then after that, we got the guy who was like, how much have I got left in my wallet? So what about you? Your era is definitely in the middle of my era. I was actually oh. said 1978 to 2006. And it ends with the golden age ends with the opening of Expedition Everest. So if you want to, if you want to put a super fine point on it, it that's it. Mm-hmm. So different eras of the company. So the Card Walker management team and then Eisner, they had mm-hmm. big ideas. So I mean, Card Walker built Epcot. Eisner built two parks himself. They took big risks, right? They built things that they weren't sure that other people wanted. They didn't mm-hmm. necessarily look at spreadsheets when making decisions, and they build things. Let's face it. The Disney company would not build Epcot today. The, the no. Epcot that was built no. in 1982, there is absolutely no way 
on earth this management team would ever approve Epcot. It just wouldn't happen. So for me, it's that time period, 78 to 2006, is when they bet big on Walt mm-hmm. Disney World. And not everything worked, right? No. But you got to give Eisner credit, right? He is a man not without his faults, right? Mm-hmm. But if you think about all the rides that he built, all the hotels, the parks he built just in, in Walt Disney World, right? That mm-hmm. takes a, a ton of nerve and a ton of reinvesting money instead mm-hmm. of putting it somewhere else in the, in the Disney organization. And so he built. Like he, he did. He did. Yeah. He did not manage by spreadsheet. And I give him credit for that. So the second part of Eddie's question is, is this. It's no secret that you guys aren't loved by Disney for your past criticisms. But as a loyal listener, it seems like you're getting increasingly upset about some of these decisions. Yeah, so I'll start here. So uh, I don't think that's true that we're not loved by Disney. I think, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I'm being perfectly honest here, I have literally never met a frontline CM, a cast mm-hmm. member, who has told me, you know, you know what, you got this company all wrong. Mm-hmm. Like It's only upper management and the public relations people that are uncomfortable with what I say. And even then, like the PR people, they don't dislike us because we're, uh, we're jerks, right? So when I say things like, you know, be our guest satisfaction ratings started tanking literally the day they introduced the fixed price dinners, right? They know that's true. They have the same data that, that we have, right? They, they know what we know. But the problem is, is it's their job to sell the resort and to sell the Disney mystique. And some of the stuff that we say makes that job harder. So we're not doing them any favors. And then conversely, they don't do us any favors, right? I will say that it hasn't always been that way. There was a mm-hmm. time not too long ago where Disney's PR department thought they had a professional obligation to journalists, regardless of what they were going to write. And that changed sometime in the early first decade of the 2000s. Yeah. I'm not going to mention anybody's names, either good or bad, right? I have some favorites. I agree. I agree. But at the same time, you, you have to understand that during that same window of time, Disney learned there were different ways to get information out, you know, yeah. like the, the Disney moms. All right. So to get to use, uh, you guys will often say phrases along the lines of uh, based on other stuff we've heard behind the scenes that we can't talk about in the show and so on, and then drop some information about, you know, marathon dates or ride closures, uh, or even the fact that you send your own people into the park to check wait times uh, and discover the difference between what Disney tells you and the truth. Have you ever heard of Disney executives who listen to your show and begin screaming expletives in their office? at the information you provide. Uh, all right. So so let me just start. Jimmy, you've said this before. There are definitely mm-hmm. stories that we will not be able to tell until the right people are retired and in some cases dead, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's stuff that we know will never happen, like mm-hmm. stuff that we know that is probably dead. The projects are dead and will never happen. Mm-hmm. Just telling the story will identify who, who told it, right? There's just no way to, to separate the story from the person. And there's stuff that we get on a fairly regular basis about things that are going to happen months or years from now that we can't just can't even reference on the show. And when those things happen, mm-hmm. Jim and I are going to act just as surprised as everyone else just to protect our sources, right? Just we have to play all that's part of the game, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just the nature of doing it, right? The fact that you know, you've know you built up a certain level of trust with yeah. sources and, yeah. and that sort of thing that I've said this before, you know, no story, no matter how you know spectacular is worth destroying somebody's career over. Yeah, I mean, you know, happen, they yeah. have house payments, they have kids to send to college and it's just sort of like, okay, so I got to sit on that one for a decade yeah. or two or never tell it. I tell Laurel all the time, whenever you get one of these stories, it's like you or I, Jim, whoever, whichever one passes first is going to yep. have the best wake ever <laughs> because I will start telling the stories. <laughs> I'll give it to you. And I know you'll there listen to me. Like, yeah. We should sell tickets to Jim's wake. I think we should. There we go. 
<laughs> Nancy would want us to. Yeah, yeah. This just reminds me, there's a famous story about when L.B. Mayer died and all of Hollywood turned out and someone is standing Ned Red Skelton on the steps of the, the church and, you know, somebody says, wow, look at the turnout. And Red says, well, you give the public what they want. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. But uh, to answer the uh, the second part, have you heard of uh, Disney executives that listen to the show and begin screaming at the information you provide? So I know, I so this is definitely true. Uh, I know mm-hmm. that inside certain departments, there was at one time, and there may still be, uh, mm-hmm. a kind of McCarthy-esque suspicion of, is this person talking to Jim Rowland? Like I, I've heard from people who have been accused of that, um, mm-hmm. and, and it's taken seriously as, as a serious problem in some departments. The interesting thing for me is like, Half the stuff that we talk about, you can figure out just from by looking at public documents or mm-hmm. you know reading patents or looking at source code or whatever. Mm-hmm. So maybe we're getting a little more credit than we're due there, but uh, uh, yeah, it's definitely a thing, and it's and it's it, it's it may still be a thing in some departments. I will share a quick story here about how information got tighter coming out of Imagineering. Yeah, when Disney acquired Pixar in 2006 because at one point information leaked out about a project that really upset steve jobs and he sat down with marty scalar and the rest of the group there and it's like you need to find out who's leaking out of imagineering and i will tell you how to do this and it's like okay oh the canary traps well yeah you know just effective you sit down with the four and five different people who you suspect may be leaking and you have scripted what you're going to say to them. And though there were key phrases and that sort of thing in what you're sharing with this person. And then you just sit back to see what leaks. And it's yep. like, if somebody mentions yellow or blue or a train yep. or, or that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. You know, and these are, these talk. are called canary traps in the, uh, in the industry. So you, it, you give slightly different pieces of information to everyone mm-hmm. and you see what leaks and then you can identify it. So you might not be able to, um, to identify the exact person with one leak, but with two leaks, you mm-hmm. generally can. No, that's it exactly. And starting in the late 2000s, information did get tighter, though, again, in the classic way, once people left the company, you got some wonderful stories. I will say that one of the things that I know Disney executives were super upset about, um, Mm -hmm. at least at one time, was when uh, Touring Plans published, started publishing actual and posted wait times. Like there was definitely a faction inside the company who really, really uh, didn't like that. And they were looking for ways to stop it. And then there was another group of people who were absolutely fine with it and they wanted to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, why can't we publish our own wait times? And mm-hmm. it looks like the secrecy group has won out for now. And the, uh, the thing, the thing that surprises me about that is mm-hmm. like Disney has this, and, and, and this is not news to Jim, but Disney has this, like it's, it's part of their culture to be suspicious of outsiders. Like mm-hmm. don't collaborate, don't cooperate. And that's the thing that is going to, one of the things that's going to bite them in the butt in the long run. And so here's an example, right? So we make all of our wait time data publicly available to anyone who wants it. Also the metadata around it, right? So if you want to study Disney wait times or restaurant surveys or, you know, any of the data we have, it's publicly available. Go download it, do what you want with it. And if you go into like GitHub and search for touring plans, you will see people who have used the projects who they didn't ask us for it. We didn't give it to Mm -hmm. them, right? They just publicly got it, right? Mm -hmm. But the thing is now, since we make the data publicly available, there are tons and tons of high school kids and college kids and professionals who are, you know, learning stuff about data analysis, who are using that data and who we have helped. So I've actually lost count of how many times touring plans has been referenced in research papers. And every year, and I'm not exaggerating, we help Mm -hmm. dozens of kids 
with their either their undergraduate capstone projects or grad school research. And they want to understand how Disney works and Disney won't tell them, but we will. So we get the chance, right? It's Roaring Plans to inspire and to teach part of the next generation of you know very smart people how to look at Disney from a, uh, an analytical, critical perspective. And those kids will eventually teach other kids. And that's how you change attitudes in the long run. And Disney, by not participating in this, is losing out on a huge opportunity to influence those kids, right? Mm, but again, if, you, if you're only looking five minutes ahead. Yeah, if you have a, it's a cultural thing, right? Anyway, so the, yeah. la- mm-hmm. <laughs> the last question was, has absolutely nothing to do with Disney. But, uh, mm-hmm. but Eddie says, uh, I'm taking the family out west to see the five big national parks in southern Utah. Next April, Arches, Canyonlands, Capitol Reef, Bryce, and Zion. It's not Disney related, but do you have any tips? Kids are seven and eight. So my first thing is lots and lots of water, Eddie, oh, yeah. and long sleeve shirts and sunscreen, and at least enough food and gear to get you through one uncomfortable night if worst comes to worst. I've been in the Colorado desert in Southern California in summer. Jim, you and I were actually there, 121 degrees. <laughs> we were, we were. And Walla was on fire too. I know. Did you see that Palm Springs is bringing back the Marilyn uh, Monroe statue? I did, yeah. I did. We, we should definitely get a before and after. I'm definitely grayer. All right, so I've been in, in Palm Springs where it's 120 degrees. I've also been in Moab, Utah in the summer and Moab is way worse. I don't mm-hmm. know if it's closer to God or whatever. And also don't forget when you're hiking, you will probably be at altitude. So I don't know where you're coming from, Eddie, but I think these, these places start at like 5,500 feet and go mm-hmm. from there. In Zion, the Narrows, is, if the kids can make it, is just about perfect. Like it's everything you want in a photo of national parks. You can actually I think, camp there overnight, which again, if you can get in there with gear, uh, makes the hike easier. Um, in Canyonlands, I think Grandview Point Trail is where it's at. Do that in the morning where the sunlight is great. For Bryson Arches, uh, and these are the only other ones that I haven't been to, that I've been to, it's not so much the stuff you see during the day, but you can go stargazing at night because you're so far away from light sources. Yeah. So you can see the spiral galaxies, you can see the dust clouds. It makes you feel super tiny, and I got vertigo, but it's super cool. Uh, you will not look at the night sky um, the same way. Also, uh, if you're going to do anything in Bryce, uh, stick to the rim trail. Everything else is super crowded. Um, I haven't been to Capitol Reef, but let me know how it is. I know Sequoia wasn't mentioned in the pile here, but Len, at some point in the not-so-distant future, you and I have to get out to that part of California sometime between May to September when the access road to Mineral King is open. Oh, I would totally do that. Nancy and I have been the once, and they say it's a two-lane road. It's not a two-lane road. <laughs> but, you know, the, the effect of the sign that says, yeah, beware of marmots who will crawl up into your car engine and eat through the hoses that provide coolant for your car. I mean, beware of marmots is just good advice in general. It's no bear on the front porch, which I'll tell you about later. But, you know, yeah, the, the, the marmots inside the engine of your car are a bad thing. Huh, so. marmots, how about that? All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us the story of Toy Story Midway Mania at the Disney theme parks. We'll be right back. So with the uh, with the opening of Avengers Campus last week and the opening of the new Web Slingers ride, mm-hmm. we thought it would be uh, a good idea to sort of review Disney's history of building these kinds of rides, right? And you thought... Well, there's no better place to start than with Toy Story Midway Mania. If you're really telling the story of the development of Toy Story Midway Mania, we actually have to take a step back 
to the opening. In fact, it was uh, 23 years ago this week when the very first Disney Quest opened on the west side of downtown Disney in Orlando. Okay. I'm assuming our, our listeners, a bunch of them at least, got into that Disney Quest, which was uh, an indoor interactive theme park, yep. five stories tall, 100,000 square feet of space inside. The ultimate video arcade. Disney, when they were developing these, and this was Disney's regional entertainment division. Yep. At one point, there was a very ambitious plan for these indoor theme parks. At one point, Disney planned on building... 30 of these worldwide. Wow. It wasn't just that it, it was a an arcade. They embraced the arcade aesthetic, as in people, when they come back, are going to expect new things. So we have oh, to yeah. not only have quality attractions for opening day, and there were things like the, the virtual jungle cruise. It was an inflatable raft on a, a motion base, and you, you had a real paddle, and you yeah. were supposedly, you know, you had traveled back in time with Wayne Zielinski from the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids movies, and you had to chase down the time gizmo to get back home. There was like, oh, likewise Cyberspace Mountain, yep. where you... The two-person compartment where you designed your own coaster and the Aladdin's magic carpet ride with the where you sat on the motion base with the the head-mounted display and then supposedly flew through the streets of Agrabah. Yep. That was the first one, right? That was the first one that yeah. I can remember. Yeah. The first of these attractions opens in June of 1998. So, you know, we figure we're going to get guests coming through this on a regular basis, so we need to prep our next major attraction. And so they take Hercules in the Underworld, which was an opening day attraction. And after just two years in being in the Orlando building, they pull it out. And they then put in an attraction known as Pirates of the Caribbean Battle for Buccaneer Gold. Do you remember this, yep. Len? Yep. Or, okay. This is the, uh, the dueling ships. It was, it was, but at the same time, it was for the time, for the, the year 2000, amazingly cutting edge. It's a five minute long experience. You walk into a room where you are surrounded by this 270 degree screen. It fills your field of vision, but there are now five stations in the room. There are four cannons that have a, a pulse ring mechanism. And then in the centermost position, there's a ship's wheel. Yep. And so the five, you know, you and four of your friends step into the room and you decide who's going to be the captain of the ship and who's going to man the, the gun turrets. And then the screen footage starts running on these 270-degree screens, and you are on a pirate ship in the harbor sailing out to do battle with other with pirate ships. And if you were pulling on that pull string and firing on the ship, you know, on your screen, it would not only take damage, but if you fired, concentrated your fire on the ship's armory, it would burst into flame. I and remember would, this. Yeah, yeah. And you get this sort of the um, 1960s fake flame effect on the uh <laughs> That's it exactly. Yeah, it you, you'd feel the heat, yeah. and you 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 get get a whiff of of smoke, and this would continue right up until you got to sort of the last two minutes or so, and then you would face down the attraction's big bad, which was Jolly Roger, and his cursed skeleton pirates. The problem here is that by the time this attraction opens at Disney Quest. Disney has lost confidence in its indoor theme park idea. I know. That's so sad. They built one more Disney Quest. It was opened in Chicago in uh, June of 1999. So one year after the, the, the downtown Disney version. 
And it closed on September 4th, 2001. That's a week before 9-11? Yeah, so it wasn't even related to terrorism. Wow. No, no. The problem was that it would do kill the business during the weekend and would be empty on weekdays. And it was a business plan that just couldn't sustain itself. So how does Dave and Buster stay in business and Disney Quest doesn't? If you talk with the, the, the folks who worked on, on Disney Quest, their argument was you put the restaurant on the bottom floor. Oh, instead of the, the top, top floor. Top floor. You think that's you know, it? That it's basically you want that you want the restaurant and bar as easily accessible as possible? That's it exactly. To hear the Dave and Buster people talk, you know, it's so much easier to sell people game tokens after they had a couple of drinks. I've had a great meal, I've enjoyed myself, let's go play for a couple hours. And they had a wonderful restaurant up on the fifth floor that had food that the Cheesecake Factory consulted on. It was, was wonderful stuff, but you had to have already purchased admission to Disney Quest to then just get access to the fifth floor of the building where the restaurant was located. By 2000, they're walking away from this concept. In fact, I'm sure you've heard the stories about the Philadelphia version of Disney Quest where you know they, they went so far as to dig the cellar hole for this five-story building no. and then and then disney walked away and then for years do you know what's buried in that hole in philadelphia jim what's not buried in yeah that i love the stories about people who you know were giving directions in the city it's like okay so you go to you know that, that's right and make a turn at the disney hole <laughs> disney want basically walks away from disney quest in in 2000 but but here's the thing the orlando version stays open yeah for another 15 years. <laughs> hey, we got a dead horse over here. Here's your stick. <laughs> I was thinking, how many times have you talked about the Disney formula for we built this attraction, we have so many years built into the plan, we have to recover our costs. Yeah, 20 or 30 years, depending on the depreciation, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, the fact that, you know, they kept this in place for 15, 16 years, and when you talked... With folks in Orlando, it's like, we have enough rainy days here that people get chased out of the park and they're looking for something to do and they'll end up at Disney Quest. And we'll happily take that business, but we won't put dime one into putting new attractions into this building. What we have in the building is perfectly fine for a concept that we've abandoned. So now... We talk about you know, Disney walks away from this concept in 2001. That's also a problematic year for the company because remember, that's also the year that California Adventures opens in February and almost immediately underwhelms theme park guests. Yeah. And then eight months later, as you mentioned, 9-11 happens. And for six months or so, theme park attendance around the world dips because no one's traveling. In California, they feel like we need to do something immediately to get people to come back or at least to sample this park. And Disney's own guest survey said that there isn't a lot to this park that's kid-friendly. So that's one of the reasons why you saw a Bugs Land fast-tracked. I mean, that land with Flix Funfair opened in October of two, uh, 2002. I mean, the place hadn't even been open, what, 15 months at this point. And it's like, new land, we need a new land. Then you look around the rest of the park and it's like, with the exception of like King Triton's Carousel by the Sea, where are the Disney characters? I mean, you've got the Disney animation building, but beyond that, this is kind of a character-free park. At the same time, again, you've got, got a Walt Disney Company that, much like today, after the pandemic, is kind of watching its wallet for a while. And here's that six months after 9-11 
And they're looking cold-bloodedly at California Adventure. And it's like, look, you know, we spent $1.1 billion on the expansion of the Disneyland Resort. And it's like, what's working? And it's like, well, Grand California Resort and Spa, working great. Disneyland Esplanade is a you know a way to get people back and forth across the park, also good. Downtown Disney Shopping and Dining District, very happy there. I mean, we have to change out, you know, a store here, a restaurant there, but that's standard for for kind of a mall thing. Yeah. And Mickey and Friends parking structure with its you know room for ten thousand cars. You know, they this is all great. The one part that isn't working is California Adventure. <laughs> all the stuff around the theme park, fabulous. Yeah. The actual theme park yeah. itself, yeah, yeah. yeah. So because of that $1.1 billion, the Imagineers know with Disney holding the purse strings, especially tied to this moment, it's like, look, you have to find an affordable way to fix this park. This park needs more attractions featuring characters, but we don't want to spend a lot of money developing something <laughs> new. We want you guys to think around corners, to find things that we've done previously. And so, <laughs> look, I know I know it takes, uh, you know, a billion dollars to build a theme park, right? But we've already spent that billion dollars. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so. <laughs> and so here we have Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, the Battle for Buccaneers Gold. And in the year 2000, Thea, the, the Themed Entertainment Association, actually, you know, recognized that attraction for excellence because, you know, it's innovative. I mean, the, you know, the fact that you're on a motion base and, you know, with that smoke and water effects and that sort of thing, yeah. it's like, you know, this is a killer ride experience. And it didn't cost $100 million to build. No, it did not. Yeah. So you're now an Imagineer and you're in that kind of chocolate and peanut butter space. You have to take things you've already got and combine them in ways that allow you to do something affordable. Yeah, we, like, need, we need to build a new ride. It has to be great. We've got the budget of a used Honda Accord. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So the Imagineers start, you know, their pitch with like, let's look at Paradise Pier. We only got that one character-based ride. We've got King Triton's Carousel by the Sea. This is supposed to be the part of the park that honors the seaside amusement parks of California. Mm -hmm. It said, Seaside Amusement Parks always had shooting galleries. Ah, okay. All right, all right. All right. And so we have this mechanism from Pirates of the Caribbean, Battle for Buccaneers Cold. And it's like, what if we do a ride-through shooting gallery? And the, the folks at the Disneyland reside, it's like, wonderful idea, killer. Sounds kind of familiar. Sort of like that Buzz Lightyear Astro Blaster ride we're building over at Disneyland right now. The one that's supposed to open in 2005 is part of the, the park's 50th anniversary. Right. Or, or, or yeah, similar to Buzz Lightyear, which has been in world since 98. 98. Yeah. 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 But get to the no, 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 no. Buzz uses ray guns with triggers. You know, ours is completely different. You know, this is a cannon with a pull string. You know, it's a boom, 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 boom. So, you know, that's an entirely different experience. And we're going to build our ride around the company's biggest star. And that is Mickey Mouse. Uh, okay, well, we know that didn't happen. <laughs> well, and that's what we'll get to on our, our next show, where we discuss Finally, how so we we went from Mickey, Mickey's Midway Madness to Toy Story Mania. So, so here's my, this is the thing I've always wanted to know about um, Toy Story mm -hmm. Mania. You know, the you mentioned the, the pull string mechanism. Yep. How strong is that rope that's attached to it? Because you think about how many, I, I'm pretty enthusiastic when I'm pulling that rope, right? When I'm I'm playing this thing, and I got you. You don't ever see them break, 
You don't even see them frayed. And I'm like, could this thing moor the Queen Elizabeth, the QE2? <laughs> if we if we ran into a problem, like, wow, what is this? Is there steel reinforcement? Like, is it like a steel belted radial tire? But the what? I can tell you from conversations I've had with Imagineers, they love hearing you say this, Len. They're the, the people who spent weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks testing particular. Oh, no. Like, I know, think about it every time I ride, I'm like, why have I never yeah. seen one of these things break? They don't fray. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's but amazing. conversely, the fact that uh, if we we talk about wet slingers, a, a Spider-Man adventure, the fact that there is no poltering mechanism, right. and this all keys off of facial recognition and recognizing how your hand is moving, yep. because frankly, there is a cost to those ropes and maintaining them, oh, and yeah, yeah. and it's more that's a more natural fluid movement to do it uh, to that that way. I'm waiting for someone to throw out a shoulder. I was about to say, already happened. Or carpal tunnel. Oh yeah, like when you come off of uh, when you come off of Toy Story, if if you don't have like an ache in a shoulder (laughs) or some sort of repetitive stress injury, you 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 didn't play hard enough to win. That's that's on you. There you go. (laughs) All right, great great intro story, Jim. That's really fun. Mm. Okay, cool. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before on iTunes including a new show on the history of World of Color at Disney's California Adventure. On next week's show, we're going to continue this story of the history of Toy Story Mania. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, lennettouringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be sharing Grandpa Adams' secret recipe for strawberry icebox pie and Grandma Adams' double secret recipe for strawberry ripple at the 49th Annual Monroe Congregational Church Strawberry Festival this coming weekend, June 19th and 20th, at the Monroe Congregational Church in beautiful downtown Monroe, Connecticut. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show. <laughs>